0: Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. This week we wrap up our extended review of the story of the Cali Gang and I'll invite you to stay listening at the end to hear about what's coming next on the Australian Histories Podcast. You'll recall that Ned, the only surviving member of the Cali Gang, was tried and found guilty of murdering the police at Stringybark Creek and he was sentenced to hang for that crime. In episode 18 today we'll recount Ned's last days. We'll look at the aftermath of the Kelly outbreak and then a little bit about what happened afterwards to the Kellys and to some of the other persons involved. Finally, we'll wrap up the Kelly saga by looking at the ongoing cultural influence of Ned and the gang. As you know, I have put up the reference lists for each episode at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and this final week, I'll post a few more images that I find interesting. So off we'll go then with the final in the Kelly series. So we left off the last episode after Ned had been found guilty and sentenced to hang for the murder of Constable Thomas Lonergan at Stringybuck Creek on October 26, 1878. We noted that Ned remained pretty quiet throughout much of the trial, and he did not really get or take the opportunity to explain his actions, despite telling Gonson this was his only purpose in wanting to go to trial. Those in the court, though, did witness a feisty exchange with the Justice Redmond Barry, just as the judge brought down the sentence. We'll talk a little more about that shortly, but first I just want to recap that part of the exchange related to Barry. He wanted Ned to understand that he was sentenced to hang and he could expect to hang. Redmond Barry wanted it clear there was to be no chance for appeal or clemency. And we know the authorities in general would have been keen to get Ned dispatched and the embarrassing Kelly outbreak behind them. And, in a timely manner, the Melbourne Cup horse race was due to run any minute The authorities certainly would like to have all of this off their plate to ensure a pleasant carnival and an opportunity to celebrate their success at last. Ned certainly was guilty of causing the death of Lonigan and the others given that they approached the camp and bailed them up but I think we can say that the justice system on this occasion was not working at its best to serve impartial and unbiased justice. Many knew it and Ned knew it too. His exchanges with Barry served to reignite his fierce bravado. Leaving the court a condemned man, Castles reports him shouting they would need 40,000 troopers to rid the colony of Kellys. His execution date being set for November 11th, he was returned to the Melbourne jail and placed in the condemned cells. Castillo again showed some mercy in allowing Ned the dignity of keeping his beard and his longer hair when usually condemned men were clean-shaven. The papers agreed that given Kelly's criminal history, there should be no reason why Barry's sentence should not be carried out. The Age commenting, quote, no greater criminal name is recorded in the annals of Victorian crime, unquote. But the obviously poor defence and biased instruction was causing members of the public to ponder the fairness of the trial. Caulfield notes that, quote, acting with self-confessed haste in the glare of international media, and misleading the jury on a vital point of law concerning self-defence, the conduct of Judge Barry in particular could have been open to some challenge. And then there was the palpable incompetence of Kelly's own defence. At this time, there was already a growing movement against the barbaric death penalty, The jury foreman had later told McIntyre that all jury members thought Ned guilty, but that a couple were anti-death penalty and had to be convinced to bring down their verdict knowing the likely sentence. Given Kelly's high profile and the obviously flawed case, his case might now provide a rallying point for the campaign. Ned's solicitor, David Gaunson, who had strong political ambitions, was ready to campaign against the death penalty and to gain clemency for Ned, But it was his brother William who really put in all his energy to helping the Kellys after the sentencing David continued to advocate strongly in the days that followed but strangely he never visited with Ned after the trial perhaps he was keen to distance himself from the failure maybe he couldn't face the condemned Ned who knows but they did get straight to work seeing what they could achieve with public support William Gaunson also a lawyer met with Kate and Tom at Robert Burns Hotel, which was then situated on the corner of Burns Lane and Lonsdale Street in Melbourne, to plan their campaign. He then met with Premier Berry to make their case. For the times, Berry was considered pretty liberal, in that he did not, quote, align himself with the top hats, unquote, and generally resisted the influence of the wealthiest classes over the democratically elected Legislative Assembly. But he was, most certainly, a man for the rule of law and order. He was not interested in supporting the clemency request for Ned Kelly. He did agree to lift the ban on the family visitors, though, so Maggie and the other family members were finally able to meet with Ned. The Gaunsons and other members of the Society for the Abolition of Capital Punishment organised meetings and rallies and began gathering signatures for a petition for clemency. November 5th saw a massive demonstration in Melbourne and they called on the Governor to commute Ned's sentence most newspapers attempted to downgrade that turnout implying that most attendees were low lifes from the back slums of the city the labouring classes so we assume that implies that that class of people should have no opinion on how the state is run on behalf of its people it's a little taste here perhaps of the class superiority and unfairness that ned and his like were railing against for all those years the papers had powerful influence and featured graphic illustrations, not always impartial, and sometimes using great artistic license. Their language was very emotive and strong. Many journalists openly canvassed Hanging for Ned, declaring it, wholly just that the ringleader of a gang should remain alive to suffer the ignominy of criminal death, unquote. Some journals, normally opposed to capital punishment, thought it appropriate in this case for Ned. But, over several days, at various venues, they continued to gather signatures on the anti-capital punishment petitions, calling for Ned's sentence to be commuted to life in prison, while the age sneered, quote, a large number of weak-minded people, principally females, signed, unquote. Jones reports that the initial impressive number of 32,000 signatures continued to rise to 60,000. However, on seeing those documents, Premier Berry asserted that, quote, whole pages of it were written in the same hand, unquote, and he discounted it as a valuable reflection of the people's desire. In the end, they were unable to sway the authorities, despite Kate Kelly actually begging on her knees in front of the governor. Interestingly, Castles claims that Berry's accusations are borne out when you look at the originals, which are housed now in the Public Records Office of Victoria. So the governor and the government, seeing no reason to grant a stay, left the execution date, as set for November 11, 1880. When Ned was informed all pleas for clemency had been rejected, and he would be hanged in eight days' time, he said only, It is short. Ned had written a number of letters while in jail, attempting to explain why things had come to pass. Actually, he dictated them, as his injuries meant he could no longer write and all his formal documents were signed, post Glenrowan, with a laboured X. Two of them were written in November, from his condemned cell. They contained some of the same explanations for his behaviour as we've had recorded before, albeit in a more thoughtful and respectful tone, but they did go into great detail about his exact intentions at Glenroan, some of which had not been stated before. I think we must necessarily look on the content with some scepticism, as those letters were written with complete hindsight and with the intention of pleading for clemency it is possible his explanations are true but odds are that much of it would have been massaged to show the most favorable light on ned's actions i won't record those letters on this podcast though they are reproduced in Corfield's book and are included in a large file of kelly related documents available online from the public record office victoria and i'll include a link on the Australian Histories podcast website. Ned did remind the authorities, though, that he had been thoughtful enough to wait until the last public train had passed Rowan before removing the tracks. His wrath was intended only for the police and authorities, and that his intention was actually to, quote, have the station master flash the danger light at the platform so as to stop the train, and he was to tell the police to leave their firearms and horses in the train, and walk out with their hands over their heads, and their lives would be spared, also to inform them that it is useless them firing, as me and my companions were in full armour and we could take the train and everyone in it, Unquote. So he's implying here his first intention was to take the leaders hostage until his mother, Skillion, and Williamson were released. He further recorded that he then intended to leave the other police at Glenrowan take the weapons, the horses, and take the train to rob a bank further down the line before disappearing into the bush with his hostages. Note there's no mention at this point about declaring a republic in the northeast. Either that was not on the agenda or he's simply not going to mention it now because it would get him into more trouble. We won't know that. So he's suggesting in these letters that he was not intending to kill large numbers on the train when he tore up the tracks, actually contradicting what the gang had said to many witnesses at Rowan. Even with his giant ego, it seems pretty unrealistic to believe that all the police on the train would simply yield and at once throw up their hands, doing as the stationmaster advised, even if Curno had not stopped the train short of the station. My feeling is that any confrontation with a trainload of police was always going to be a disaster waiting to happen the only variable might be the scale of the fight and the likely number of deaths and injuries. In the end, as we know, it was horrific, mainly for the number of civilians caught in the middle, between the police and the Kellys. No one acted with care and caution, or thought of any plan that might see the hostages out safe while they negotiated some compromise outcome. Ned, of course, must hold the largest part of the culpability in designing such a risky confrontation in the first place though the police behaved very carelessly also. In his final letter, written on November 10th, he once again pleads for the release of his mother, stating that, quote, it could not make any difference to the government, for the day will come when all men will be judged by their mercy and deeds, unquote. And the last sentence asked that his family might claim his body, to be buried by them in consecrated ground. Maggie visited Ned for the last time on the 9th of November. Then, unable to face the last wait for the inevitable grief, she headed back to Greta to be with her children. Seventeen-year-old Kate met with her brother for the last time on the 10th, along with Grace, Jim and Kate and Tom Lloyd. Kate Lloyd was rumoured to be Ned's sweetheart at the time of the Glenroan encounter, and she had devotedly followed him to Benella after his capture. Kate Kelly later told a newspaper that she wished she had not been born after experiencing all the pain of the family over the years. Remember, the Kelly women and children with the possible exception of Alan who I judged quite harshly in one of the earlier episodes where she let Ned go along with Harry Power the bushranger largely had no control over the direction the boys' lives took and simply had to mop up and protect them as much as family could and be subject to the invasion of the police into their domestic realm, and grieve when they lost their menfolk to jail or violent deaths. I mean, they were no saints, I realise, but they were even less in control of their circumstances than the men for the most part. I'm not surprised that young Kate would have been overwhelmed by it all. Also on the day before his execution, Ned, wanting a portrait for his family, asked the jail photographer to take his picture in the exercise yard and the resulting portrait is a very well-known one, a handsome picture you might be familiar with. He looks well and composed, and if it were not for the prison chains and the bluestone prison wall behind him, one would never guess he was a man about to face the gallows in less than 24 hours. Ellen was also allowed to visit with her son for the last time that afternoon. I find that image as devastating as imagining the wives of the police learning of their fate. These men were all loved fathers, sons, husbands. Such a devastating loss to the nearest and dearest. Alan at least had a chance of a last few words to comfort him and to remember him by, perhaps. Another well-known piece of Kelly folklore is that, at this last meeting, Alan is supposed to have said to Ned, Mind you, die like a Kelly, son. Seems a bit harsh, if you ask me. This dialogue was actually the claim of a Melbourne newspaper, the journalist clearly not in the cell with them at the time, and the quote appears to be yet another embellished addition to their reporting that has somehow become part of the myth. Castles reminds us that such a statement would have been highly unlikely from Ellen anyway. While Ned kept a fondness for his father, Ellen showed no ongoing loyalty to the Kelly family herself, with him in thinking it wouldn't make a lot of sense and it's more likely to be apocryphal. In the lead-up to his execution the now Catholic Dean Charles O'Hay was also able to visit with Ned and was to be present at the gallows. The family had a long relationship with O'Hay. He was supposed to have been the priest who christened baby Ned. Years later he provided counsel when Ned was in Pentridge and his influence did seem helpful as afterwards Ned kept out of trouble for a very long time, so it must have been a sorry thing for him to see Ned's young life come to this. The authorities brought in a petty criminal named Upjohn to serve as the hangman in return for a reduction in his own sentence and a small fee. Upjohn was new to the task, though, and so he was given instructions and had to practice with the equipment in the hope he wouldn't botch the gruesome task. At 9am on November 11th, Ned was led to a cell beside the gallows and he received his last sacraments. A large crowd of around 5,000 men and women had gathered outside the jail and they appeared in general to be sympathetic to Ned. The Kellys and their supporters stayed at the hotel. The official witnesses took their places and the warden presented his warrant. Ned was then brought to the scaffold and readied for the noose. There are two more well-known statements which Ned is supposed to have uttered and which are now pretty much rusted on to the Kelly mythology. As they were readying Ned for the execution, he is supposed to have turned to the warden he had befriended and sighed, Ah, oh, well, I suppose it has come to this, unquote. As Upjohn tied the knot at his neck, and some sources say a medical attendant checked to ensure the knot was correctly positioned, He is supposed to have also said, Such is life. And with that, Upjohn stepped aside and released the bolt. The sad and sorry, rather short life of Ned, a dangerous and possibly revolutionary thorn in the side of respectable society, came to an end. He had 137 days between his capture and his death. Now, whether either of those well-known statements were ever actually uttered is debatable. Again, the newspaper reporting on Kelly had always been unreliable. The conviction that they were said just seems to have grown, along with the iconic images over time. It's possible he mumbled something to those around him, but Castle's claims no journalist, from their vantage point, could have heard anything that Kelly may have said. And that a police officer standing only feet away from Ned recorded that Kelly's remarks were inaudible, possibly muffled by the hood. There was such a pattern of embellishing and indeed completely fabricating dialogue and stories that it is just as likely that these words were added by the journalist. I mean, they do sound pretty stoic and even bravely heroic now, don't they? By the time of his hanging, his heroic aura had grown again in the mind of the public and his persona was well on the way to becoming the rather larger-than-life character we know today. I do want to believe the words, actually, but odds are the reports were not accurate, sadly. And I guess this would not be good news for many fans today wearing Kelly T-shirts or tattoos declaring, Such is life. Supporters gathered at the Robert Burns Hotel became quiet as the bell tolled ten. Jim Kelly was heard to say, Ah, well, the poor devil is out of his misery anyhow. The coroner declared Ned formally deceased witnesses affirmed execution had taken place lawfully and the official document contained 22 signatures interestingly castles tells us that ned's death certificate records him as a laborer leaving joe burn as the only one with outlaw recorded on the death certificates though ned requested his body be released to his family untouched after death executed prisoners were regarded as property of the crown his remains were not returned to his family and various reports suggested that they were instead subjected to a gruesome lineup of indignities. In the months and years after his death, there was a lot of confusion and contradictory claims about exactly what had happened to him and where his remains ended up. Many of the older sources recount that Ned's body underwent extensive dissection, as reported by a contemporary newspaper, and of people who had claimed to have Kelly body parts or knew someone who did. As mentioned earlier, the public interest in souveniring anything to do with the Kelly story was strong right from the start. Certainly, Max Kreitmeyer, who operated the waxworks in Bourke Street, Melbourne, was granted first access to Ned's remains. He shaved his head and face, and he made death casts, as he had done with the body of Joe Byrne. And these casts were on display the following day. Several copies of the plaster casts still exist, including one housed at the State Library of Victoria. In the past, prisoners' bodies were often given over for medical dissection, and some reports recorded that Ned's was sent for that purpose after Kreitmeyer had finished. At this time, there was a belief certain attributes of brain and head shape could explain, or at least predict, criminal behaviour. There were reports that his head was severed from the body in the presence of medical students from Melbourne University, and that his brain was removed and studied. But, if so, apparently the results of any such examination were not documented, which itself is a little unusual in those cases. The flesh was supposed to have been removed from his skull, and after having its shape studied, was retained as a curio paperweight. We can assume, if he was taken for this purpose, that his body would also have been extensively autopsied. But then, after that, where his remains ended up was unclear. Though there are suggestions, his remains were buried in the prison yard with a bluestone block serving as a tombstone of sorts, with the letters EK and a downward arrow marking the spot, but authenticity of the stone marking over the actual grave is dubious. Over the years there have been stories of Ned's skull being located and handed to the authorities, some suggesting it was missing since the possible dissection, others that it was removed years later when the grave sites were opened to relocate the contents during site redevelopment. More recently, when prisoner remains were once again being exhumed and moved, there was a great deal of interest in forensically tracing and identifying possible remains. Rob Hulls, the Victorian minister responsible at the time, ensured that such an investigation could take place. Then the missing skull, presumed to be Kelly's, also resurfaced, and it seemed there was now a very good possibility of being able to answer a number of long outstanding questions. A brilliant book documenting the range of investigations by teams undertaking the thorough scientific and historical research, and reporting on the findings, was published in 2014 by the CSIRO, called Ned Kelly Under the Microscope, Solving the Forensic Mystery of Ned Kelly's Remains. It was edited by Craig Cormick. And it puts to bed a great many of the rumours and false claims that have been circulating since Ned's execution. The book would certainly be fascinating to anyone with an interest in such an investigation. It's very thorough and easy to read. I highly recommend it. I'll precede the timeline and outline the evidence from the Cormac book and then comment on what the investigative teams found to discount or confirm some of the long-held rumours. You'll get an idea why being certain about the state and the resting place of Ned's remains was so fraught. 11th November 1880. Ned is hanged, a death mask is made, and his body buried in the yard of what we now call the Old Melbourne Jail. So already we can discount the stories of an extended autopsy performed by medical students and unknown disposal of the remains. 1929. Remains of prisoners are dug up from Old Melbourne Jail and transferred to unmarked mass graves at Pentridge Prison in Coburg. Many labourers and onlookers at the time souvenired remains that they presumed were Kellys, and a skull presumed to be Kellys was also removed. 1930s, the skull, believed to be Kellys, was sent to the Australian Institute of Anatomy in Canberra and it remained there on display until the 1940s, when it was removed from view and stored. December 1952, the stored skull is recovered from the Institute's safe after being unaccounted for for some time. 1971, the skull and the death mask are given to the National Trust. 1973, the skull goes on display at the Old Melbourne Jail's museum. At some point in the past, the skull acquired a small black ink inscription saying, E. Kelly. 1978. The skull is stolen from display and not recovered for more than 20 years. 2002. During further redevelopment at the site of the old Melbourne jail, remains of an executed inmate were found indicating that not all bodies had been recovered in 1929 and leading to much speculation and a great deal of public interest in finding the truth. 2008, an archaeological dig takes place at Rowan, as discussed earlier, resulting in a documentary called Ned Kelly Uncovered. 2009, With the Pentridge prison site also under redevelopment, the relocated Melbourne jail prisoner burial site was pinpointed by Heritage Victoria archaeologists. The prison's documentation suggested that Ned's remains were amongst those burials. May 2009, 21 coffins containing exhumed remains from the site at Pentridge were admitted to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine's mortuary for examination. November 2009, the skull stolen from the old Melbourne jail in the 70s is handed in for identification. So I'll just break the timeline here and recount from the Cormac book a little of what they discovered before giving you the final findings. First, the team called for public help in sharing any documents or artefacts that families might still have that could contribute to their investigation. In particular, they were asking for remains such as bones or teeth that may have been kept by families of those who were in attendance when the 1929 Exhumation took place at Melbourne Jail. They wanted information about Alex Talbot, who was photographed holding a skull in a newspaper story. Talbot had reportedly taken a tooth from the skull and carried it in his pocket for years. They wanted information on the contractors at the Exhumations, one of whom was supposed to have taken that skull for safekeeping at the time, and then later handed it to the authorities. Information about Max Kreitmeyer and his methods used for creating the death masks. Some processes did remove heads from bodies when they created these casts, but not all. So was there evidence about what Max did? They wanted information about Sir Colin Mackenzie, the founder of the Australian Institute of Anatomy, who was given the skull to examine. And information about the missing bluestone block, which supposedly marked Ned's grave, with an EK and an arrow on it. Some of the other stones from the Old Melbourne Jail site had ended up as part of the beach wall from Brighton to Beaumorris in Melbourne. And in response to their call, some excellent information came in. The grandson of Talbot still had the tooth, along with a photograph of his grandfather holding the skull that the tooth came from. And the grandson of Harry Lee, of Lee and Dunn excavators, also had family photographs taken at the jail site during the 1929 excavations, and a family story about how his grandfather kept a skull for some time in a box on his bedside stand. Firstly, their thorough review of relevant archives indicated that the popular belief that Kelly's body underwent a post-mortem for students was likely to be incorrect. Reported initially in the newspaper The Bendigo Independent, and cited by many historians since, we know a good percentage of the newspaper reports around that time contained salacious fabrications. The team reviewed the official documentation, including the formal report by the Surgeon General. He reported examining Ned's body to declare him dead, but not what the examination was. While at that time bodies from prisons could be handed to the schools for post-mortem training, By 1865, there was apparently an opt-out clause in the Victorian legislation, and Kelly had clearly requested that his body not be interfered with after death. If such an investigation did take place, it would have been an illegal act. Though, I have to say, I would have thought even the preparation of the death mask may have been a violation, depending on how it was done. But, mm, it's all very disturbing. At the time, the authorities recognised that newspaper reports of any dissection would have been inflammatory to the Irish Catholic Kelly supporters, and being sensitive to such triggers, they made documented inquiries as to the truth of the claim by the Bendigo paper. Castillo, the jail governor, confirmed that there was no truth in the claim that Ned's body was given over for student examination, as the paper reported. Ned's remains, after the masks were taken, were buried in the jail grounds. However, we do not know if the head and body were definitely attached and together at the time of burial. There was a skull, recovered by the excavator Lee, from the jail grave in 1929, which was assumed to be Kelly's, and which passed through a number of hands, at some point being labelled E. Kelly in black ink. This is presumed to be the same skull that was on display for many years and was later stolen then recently handed in so now the investigation team had that stolen skull back it could be investigated after examination by several specialists it was confirmed one the skull was quite old so could have been from the kelly era two the skull was of a young caucasian adult male and interestingly it showed no signs of dissection Despite the grave at the jail having a stone marked EK with an arrow pointing to the burial site, there were a number of bodies in the vicinity, so further identification was required. The team tracked descendants of Kelly for DNA profiling and were, after a few false starts, able to extract DNA from the skull labelled E. Kelly. Those tests showed the skull, long considered to be Kelly's, was in fact the skull of another felon all those years of worshipping or reproving the wrong bushranger. However, some of the other skeletal remains recovered from the Pentridge mass graves did prove to be Ned's, and the team were able to reconstruct an almost full skeleton, though no matching skull was found amongst the Melbourne jail remains exhumed from Pentridge. His gunshot injuries were clearly visible on the skeleton, consistent with historical records of his wounds, Interestingly, the identified remains did show marks indicating some post-mortem dissection at the neck, though not of the body. A small section of the skull remained attached to the cervical spine and showed vertical sore marks. This might indicate a limited post-mortem examination was done to confirm the damage to the cervical spine resulting from the effective hanging. Apparently, this procedure was common. Though those marks indicated his head was attached to the body because of the direction the cutting was done, the author suggests it would have resulted in the head being much more easily detached from the body afterwards because of the damage. But any potential Kelly skull would not resemble the completely intact skull, like the one that had been displayed as his all through the 20th century, because of the missing piece from the base. None of the others recovered at Pendridge were later found to be his either. Possibly it's somewhere amongst a number of still unidentified reburial plots at one of the two prison sites, or someone did remove it prior to or during his burial without any permission, or at the time of one of the relocations. The whereabouts of Ned Kelly's skull still remains a mystery. Jeremy Smith reported in the Cormac book that after Ned's skeletal remains were definitively identified, they were finally, after at least three previous disturbances, laid to rest in an unmarked grave near the other family members in Greta in January 2013. I guess many won't think the investigation is complete until Ned's skull can be found, but all in all it was a positive and respectful investigation which provided a great deal more clarity. Before we finish up on this section, it would be worth a look at another very powerful element of the Kelly law. Ned and Judge Redmond Barry had exchanged words at the trial And one of the more sensational exchanges, at least as time passed, were Ned's words after being sentenced to death with the traditional and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Ned said, I will go further than that and say I will see you there where I go. As discussed previously, he probably meant afterlife in general, as his recent communications with clergymen while in jail seemed to have heightened a religious awakening of sorts and his comments were an indication that he believed the Lord would judge them both. He used similar words in comforting his sisters, that they would see him again. He certainly wouldn't be implying that they were going to hell. Remember, Ned had stated he did not feel that he would go to hell for his behaviour, that instead the Lord would see the justice in it. Why he should be excused from the thou shalt not kill commandment is interesting. As Cauldry puts it in McCormick's book, It's a grandiose boast of heavenly (laughs) favour. But, of course, the popular understanding is that Ned did mean he'd see Barry in hell. And that ferocious exchange makes for a much better legend, doesn't it? Particularly in light of what happened afterwards. It became prophetic, even seen as a curse by some. Unwell before the trial, as Ned's execution date approached, Redmond Barry was sickening being then restricted to his bed. And he died on the 23rd of November, 12 days after Kelly, with his death certificate listing pneumonia and anthrax poisoning as the cause. It does seem to have been some kind of sepsis from a carbuncle on his neck, along with pneumonia that finally did him in, aged 67. What is now known as the Old Melbourne Jail was originally the Melbourne Metropolitan Jail, built in 1841. The hangman's scaffold was added in 1865, and that operated right into 1924 when the prison closed, with 51 people being hanged there over the years. It was dismantled in 1932, but re-erected at Pentridge. The last hanging in Victoria, indeed in Australia, before the death penalty was revoked, took place at Pentridge in 1967. That scaffold was brought back to the old Melbourne jail, then a museum in the 1970s, and it was reinstalled as an exhibit in 2000. The Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology took over some of the jail buildings and land, but much of the old Melbourne jail remains, as a fascinating and actually beautiful bluestone building. It's a major tourist attraction in the city, no doubt being assisted by the iconic and timeless Kelly Story Association. Not long after Ned's execution, a rewards board was set up to distribute the Kelly £8,000 reward, and eventually 92 applications were considered. Hare received the largest payment of £800. Then Curnow, receiving £550, and in my mind he was at least a much more deserving recipient. Soon after the Glenrowan siege, Curnow, the Glenrowan school teacher, who had waved the police train down, and his wife were invited to Melbourne to meet with Commissioner Standish and the Chief Secretary Robert Ramsay, so that he could be formally thanked for his heroism. They also arranged with the Education Department to move the family to a new school in a different district. No doubt they were concerned that Kurnow may not be safe remaining in the North East. Then, stepping down in amounts, more reward money was apportioned to Constable Kelly, Sergeant Steele, Constable Bracken, Superintendent Sadler, and many, many others, including Stanhope O'Connor from the Queensland Police. Though many of the white officers involved, even if there for only part of the siege, were awarded amounts over £100, and O'Connor getting more than £237, the native police troopers under O'Connor were only awarded £50 each, even though they were there the whole time and in a forward position firing. And to add insult to that injury, the board patronisingly suggested, quote, it would not be desirable to place any considerable sum of money in the hands of persons unable to use it, unquote. So their shares were paid instead to the Victorian and Queensland governments to be dealt with at their discretion. Of course, the troopers on the front line never saw a penny of their reward money. In a newspaper article from 2002, I noted a couple of descendants were still battling a seven-year court case for compensation owed to their forebears, though I haven't had time to chase up where that ended up. It's only 2018. Perhaps it's still underway in the courts. Jarndyce and Jarndyce from Bleak House style. There were many others who were instrumental in the Kelly's demise or capture who did not apply for a share of the reward. And then there were others who did but were rejected on inexplicable grounds, such as Anton Wick, and McIntyre, without whose evidence, one imagines Kelly's guilt at Stringybark Creek might not have been proved. Also, around the same time, soon after Kelly's death, a royal commission was called into the Kelly outbreak. It was intended to one, inquire into the circumstances preceding and attending the Kelly outbreak; two, inquire as to the efficiency of the police to deal with such possible occurrences three, to inquire into the actions of the police authorities during the period the Kelly gang were at large, four, to inquire into the efficiency of the means employed for their capture, and five, generally to inquire into and report upon the present state and organisation of the police force. As Caulfield put it, there had been much criticism of the police conduct during the outbreak and after the siege at Glenrowan, political pressure to apportion blame. In March of 1881, the Royal Commission into the police force of Victoria began meeting and hearing evidence. Francis Longmore was the Commission's chairman. Sadly, a noted Longmore was, quote, eminently honest and conscientious, but he went relentlessly for scalps, unquote. The Victoria Police had progressively deteriorated under Standish's commands. By the Kelly outbreak, its officers were often not capable of carrying out their duties professionally, as we have noted consistently throughout this series. Some were poor-quality individuals, not suitable for a role in a police force. Others were just hamstrung by the awful culture and poor leadership. Standish was the first to go, retiring from the force before he could be sacked. The Commission estimated the total cost of addressing the Kelly outbreak was around £150,000, a truly massive cost to the public, and much of that down to poor management rather than inevitable expenditure. Hare, after gaining his £800 reward, gave evidence to the Royal Commission and spent his time criticising many others in his testimony. In return, he was heavily censured by the Commissioners for his attitude. They recommended his immediate retirement, but instead he was appointed as a police magistrate, so he still had plenty of friends in high places. Hare died in 1892, aged 62, and is buried in the Melbourne General Cemetery. In February of 1881, just as that Royal Commission was preparing to get started, Ellen Kelly was quietly released from jail, given eight months' remission off her sentence. She arrived at Rowan Station accompanied by Kate, on the evening of the ninth, No doubt she would have been keen to leave her incarceration behind, but it must have been a sorry, bittersweet trip home. Travelling through Glenrowan, where Dan had died, and where Ned had pretty much reached his inevitable end, really, so much of her family destroyed, and then on to Greta, where her youngest, waiting at home, would probably have no memory of her at all. She must have known, Ned's war must stop. They must find a less confrontational way to live. All was quiet at Greta when she arrived, and hopefully it would stay that way. The family did celebrate her homecoming with a photograph, though. Everyone dressed in their Sunday best, posing in front of the house that Ned had built for his mother just before the outbreak began. I'll post that on the Australian Histories podcast website. A hopeful and optimistic image, perhaps, after all the grief... The Commission's first report, made at the end of 1881, severely criticized the police force, no surprise for us there, I think, and reflected on the inept nature of the police pursuits and the community relations in the Northeast. It blamed most of the senior police, and praised only three of them, senior constables John Kelly and Charles Johnson, and constable Hugh Bracken, and it recommended several officers immediately be given their marching orders many questioned why the commission had not taken evidence from the kelly family but they did visit 11 mile creek in may of 1881 and they spoke with Allan. so they at least heard privately what she had to say though their report formally found no evidence to support the outlaw claims of persecution by police their collected evidence really did bear it out to some extent with the hearings open to the public the behavioural shortcomings and the flawed approach to managing the concerns in the area could be seen by all. It does seem to me a shame that such an inquiry, as called for by Ned at the beginning of the outbreak, in the Cameron letter and at the various times right up to his execution, was not undertaken sooner. Could an investigation into the whole conduct and management of police and authorities, in particular addressing their behaviour in the northeast, have arrested the escalating Kelly outbreak? Many sources, including Brown writing in the 1940s, suggested the desire to break away and form a Republic of Northeast in the later days of the Kelly outbreak was a desired outcome for the gang and their disenfranchised supporters. Could some inclusiveness from the government and a clean out of leadership in the police force have encouraged more cooperation in the Northeast without the violence of attempted revolution? After Ned's death, it seemed that was the question they needed to address. The downside of the commission being held was that ill feeling was again stirred in the Northeast. The identity of many police collaborators and spies became known, and some, concerned about potential retribution, left the area for their own safety. The potential for another outbreak was still just under the surface, but this time the authorities responded differently. Fortunately, good men in the force were finally sent to Greta. Constable Robert Graham proved to be a fair, competent and level-headed officer, and without the draconian and ill-advised directions from above, he was able to manage the area without unnecessary confrontation. While it took several years before Kelly Country was considered stable, Graham's handling of the local community problems allowed the emotions to settle unprovoked after Ned's execution. He was determined to understand just how things had got to such a point of hatred in the past and, accompanied by Father Egan, he met with Ellen Kelly in her home. Jones claims that Graham reminded Ellen she had lost two sons and she might use her influence to dampen any future plans amongst Kelly's sympathisers to reignite hatred. That could only lead to more loss for everybody. Instead, they should work together to solve the problems. Over time, Jim and Ellen did agree to discourage any further agitation in their community and they helped in forming better relations. They often met with Graham publicly and accepted his visits, showing that attitudes and relationships had changed, as much by the police force as by the Kellys. The new police policy of moderation helped and the Royal Commission changes improved the general calibre of the rural police force. Graham forged a good relationship with Tom Lloyd in particular. Indeed, Tom's son later recalled his father saying, quote, If there had been more like Graham and less like Fitzpatrick, there never would have been a Kelly outbreak, Unquote. There are still those who resist accepting any criticism of the police in relation to the Kelly outbreak, but it should be remembered that such criticism is aimed at the force in 1880 and the contemporary evidence did indicate widespread problems in the force in those days. Certainly the Kellys themselves were responsible for their own actions, and must be held accountable for that. But members of a society do not operate in a vacuum. Perhaps the Commission's greatest achievement was that it caused such a great shake-up of the Victoria Police, resulting in public accountability and self-examination and a transparency which we know to be essential in any quality police force. This was a good thing for the people of Victoria and for the force members. These reviews are cathartic and help regenerate a much more professional, accountable and respected force if the right leadership and culture is put in place and we saw that the new approach did help heal and redefine the community in the northeast. The author Kelson went on to argue that, thirty four years on, the young men of the Northeast answered the call of their country, sons of settlers and the squattocracy together, displaying the Kelly bravado of mateship and bravery under fire in the battlefields of the First World War. He points to the Oxley War Memorial with the alphabetical list of squatters' sons' names alongside those of Kelly descendants and the families of recognized sympathizers. Even the emergence of the term as game as Ned Kelly was adopted in that era, claiming the legendary bravado and anti-authoritarian attitude for the Australian character. Ellen, determined to live quietly and preserve her memory of Neddy and Dan, refused all requests for publicity, until the Cookson interviews in 1911, perhaps by then taking the opportunity to lay the true Kelly record down before she died, She did live a further 16 years, though, dying in March 1927, and she was buried, also unmarked, in the family graves at Greeter. Poor Kate Kelly moved around the country in the years following and married in Forbes, New South Wales, but always troubled, and having her father's disposition to the drink, she drowned there, aged only 34. Ned's brother Jim, Finding the old habit hard to shake attracted a couple more theft convictions, but eventually he got off the treadmill and he made his living from his prison-learned trade of bootmaking. Between that and droving, he was able to support his mother and the large brood of children still with them, including Kate's three surviving children from her marriage in Forbes. Jim died a bachelor in 1946, aged 87, Grace, the youngest of Red Kelly's children, married into the local Griffith family in 1889 and many of their descendants still live in Kelly country today. So there you go. It's a complicated story and a sad and disturbing one in reality. But as a historic series of events from our past, it's also an engaging and sensational saga. You can ponder how you see Ned as a man and a historical character, but wherever you find yourself on the scale of love or loathe him, there's no denying it is a cracker of a yarn. And I've got to say, he was good to his mother. <laughs> so no matter how you feel about the man himself, the legend of Ned and the Kelly gang, albeit larger than life, is under our collective skin. The first books were being written in 1879, while the gang was still at large and a great many more were to follow. A quick search on Trove today, using the search term Ned Kelly, shows 950 books. There are vast numbers of articles and images, movies, documentaries and songs. There were plays and ballads in the early days that were incredibly popular. 1906 saw the release of the world's first full-length feature film. Guess what? The Story of the Kelly Gang. Only about 15 minutes of that hour-long film survived and has now been conserved, but when it was first shown in December of 1906, it proved to be controversial, with some people saying it not only glorified Kelly's crimes, but inspired criminal behaviour. And it was actually banned from showing in the Northeast. That element of the argument continues today. If we acknowledge the impressive elements of the story, are we glorifying the bad? I don't think it has to be that black and white. I think, after all this time, we can still enjoy the story and the numerous paintings, sculptures, and as I have laughed about before, the countless letter boxes across the country that reference the Kelly Armour. They are a delight. Like the children drawn to dinosaurs, most of us cannot help but be amazed and interested in the Kelly Armour and the legend that surrounds the brief story. It's a huge part of our Australian folklore. Well... I suppose it has come to this. We must wrap up the Kelly story here. Such is life. I really enjoyed having another close look at it, and I very much hope you did too. Hopefully you found something of interest that you may not have known before. I'll be both sad to say goodbye to Ned, but also happy to see the back of his ironclad person. It's time now to turn my attention to other brilliant stories from Australia's past. Remember to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au I'm sure you know by now that Histories is spelt with an I-E-S. The reference list this time has a good number of images and links and an extended reference list. And remember that contact details can be found on that website also. If you enjoyed the series and would care to support the continuing podcast, do consider making a donation at the Australian Histories Podcast website. And certainly, consider telling your friends about it. It's lovely to see the listenership growing. So what's next for the Australian Histories Podcast? Well, I will take a break over January to recharge. After that, I intend to produce a few standalone stories from across a number of themes that I spoke about in the introduction. Single episode stories with a bit of interest and entertainment. A little later in the new year, I may return to some in depth stories that could require two or three episodes to cover, but I'll keep you posted on that in the future. The research is very time consuming, and the fortnightly timetable was a little too optimistic, so episodes in the future might push out to monthly. Thank you so much for your interest in the podcast, and I very much hope you'll come back in the new year to see what else is being offered. Watch the Facebook page or the Twitter feed for news about the show. Both links are available from www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au Have a safe and happy break, if you're lucky enough to be getting one, like me. It's been a delight. More brilliant stories from our past will be coming up soon on the Australian Histories Podcast. Take care then. Bye for now.